This week, we've got an emergency podcast thanks to the Department of Health dropping their long-awaited rules on edible production for Florida medical marijuana treatment centers. And before we start, we're going to have four people in this discussion, three of which are lawyers and the fourth of which appears on many panels with lawyers. I want to clarify for anyone listening, although we are lawyers, we are not your lawyer. We're going to be talking about a law and a rule today. This is not to be construed as legal advice. If you have any questions about medical marijuana edibles in Florida, producing them, using them, hire a lawyer, go talk to a lawyer who's not on a podcast and go ahead and, and validate what you think or get their, get their thoughts and official legal advice. Now we can get started. This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages, casino gaming, and tobacco. Now together, we're regulated. Welcome to Eric Stevens and Ryan Fingerhut. Go ahead and introduce yourself, guys. Eric, start with you. Eric Stevens, I worked in all aspects of the medical marijuana campaigns here in the state, variety of nonprofits, testing labs, and others that I've done work with, and looking forward to all that's happening here in the state, rules, compliance, statute, etc. Absolutely. How about you, Ryan? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ryan Fingerhut. I'm the Director of Client Services for Global Go. I'm a former practicing attorney who came into the cannabis space back in 2014. I have worked licensing in most of the legalized states, as well as been a business consultant and internal compliance officer for multiple facilities. And I come back to my home state of Florida, where I'm working now with several clients. Thanks. And my esteemed co-host, Tony Glover. How you doing, Tony? You know, everything's going well, Christian. So why don't we why don't we set this up a little bit? What happened here? What's going on in Florida with the edibles rule? The Department of Health has dropped emergency rules. So what that means is that effectively the the thing they just dropped yesterday is now the law of the land until they move through traditional rulemaking and drop non-emergency rules. And what that means is there is now infrastructure. There's there's a rule in place that allows MMTCs to produce edibles. So the only thing left is for MMTCs now to get approval on the specific edibles that they want to sell into the state of Florida to patients. That it opens a whole new channel of business in Florida. It, it's a product offering that I think is attractive to a new a a new and different tier of patients in addition to the 400,000 patients that are already in the system. And it is one of those essential steps that moves Florida into a program that mirrors what a lot of people think of as a traditional regulated medical marijuana program. And I'm really happy because I, the, the way I designed, this is the most people we've had on a pod and the way I designed this, right? Obviously I love Tony. Tony's awesome. And Ryan and Eric are very good. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> Ryan, Ryan and Eric are very good friends of mine who work in the cannabis industry. And so I just, what I wanted to do is this, this is the first pod we've done like this. So I literally want to talk with you three about this rule and get our impressions and literally take a deep dive into this because there's some really interesting stuff going on. So to kick it off, 
Eric, what were your first impressions when you read this rule? Well, my first impression was I was very thankful that it came out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started to delve through and look at what it said for food establishments, labeling, sizes, shapes, colors, variations, expirations, shelf stability. There's a whole lot of different aspects to it to take into account. And I think the types of different products and what was considered and what was not, the powder as well, there were some interesting variations to that. And so I'd like to see how it compares. I haven't really, I did a deep dive on this. I haven't really compared it to as many of the other state rules as, as have been out there, but that's kind of things that I, I think will be interesting to discuss and, and how that looks now and, and may change in any form in the future. So let's talk about the first thing that you said, because I, I want to get that out of the way as the elephant in the room is that this took a long time in order to promulgate. Now, the Department of Health had its work cut out for, for them in that this is in something that is politically controversial. And when you have half of the legislature that has has very clearly indicated that they do not want the medical marijuana program in Florida to be any fun at all. The Department of Health was in a politically sensitive area. Also, edibles are a lightning rod for controversy, for overconsumption, for appealing to kids. There's so many things that go along with edibles that you have to get right. Not to mention that there had to be an established laboratory screening system, both certified labs and an actual processes for those labs to use. In order, because edibles, for those listening at home who have never dealt with that specific issues, Edibles are uniquely difficult to test, and there's not necessarily a clean way to test all edibles equally because you're doing everything from chocolates to gummies to, in this case, like effervescent beverage stuff that you can mix with liquids in order to create your own beverages. So I think every single person who worked in this industry who was asked to give a quote on this, prefaced it by saying, I'm really glad this finally happened. But now we're here. And most people seem to be pretty pleased with the rule. Ryan, as someone who's who's dealt with this type of rules in other states, how do you think Florida's law compares just generally? I actually was also, one, very pleased to see the rule, just to get that out of the way. But I actually find it to be, at, at five pages, I believe it's the length of the rule, to be fairly straightforward when I compare it to some of the more Byzantine stuff that I've seen in some other states. You know, maybe I'm making an assumption here, but it seems like the rule was designed to be implemented rather quickly. Probably has to do with the nature of the emergency regulation but it seems to be fairly straightforward, not necessarily easy to comply with. As uh, Christian said, there's a couple of major issues with edibles that are become challenging. You just can't get around that. But I think compared to some of the things I've seen in other states, it's very much an, a rule that's pragmatic. Tony, have you enjoyed reading some of these stories coming out of the Herald and, and Darrow with News Service of Florida? There seems to be some palpable excitement behind this rule. Well, everybody's excited about this. You know, uh, lobbyists are excited about it. Journalists are excited about it. It's obvious if you go on social media that the consumer base is excited. If you go to, you know, Truly, for example, is one of the major MMTCs in Florida. If you go on their Twitter account, they've promoted this and there's been a lot of responses. But one thing I might be interested to hear from Ryan and Eric is from a national perspective, can you give me some context on how early or late Florida is to the edibles party? Where are we in terms of the 50 states in terms of implementing edibles program? Generally speaking, medical states usually open up with some type of edible. So 
I know that there's been a lot of excitement here, but we are a little bit behind the curve, especially when you consider that at least pre-COVID, everyone expected edibles to be, I think, four point something billion dollar industry by 2022. So there's a lot of desire here and there's a lot of growth. It's taken a lot longer here, but it also took a lot longer to get implementation of our amendments and then statutes and, and other rules. And I think, Christian, you really alluded to it earlier. There are, you know, when it comes to edibles, there are a lot more things that have to be taken into account, whether it's the other food products that are going into it, the shelf life expiration of those other products and how that may relate. It's just a, a little bit different. And then the laboratory aspect and and then making sure that there's some smart education like we've seen in other states about making sure that people aren't over consuming. I think, you know, the way that they've divided it up and the single servings and the other things like that. I mean, a lot of this was in line with a lot of what I was expecting to see based on things that had been put into statute. But there obviously are a variety of things that may change for people that they're doing in other states that they may have wanted to do here that they may not be able to do, whether it's colors and different things like that. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see. But I think that even though we are a little bit later than others, hopefully we're going to continue to take this in a smart, safe way as we move forward. And, and hopefully the patients are going to be able to get as educated as they can so that they are able to use the, the right dosage for whatever condition it is that this is most helpful for. Can I make a hot take for this? I think that it's awesome that DOH did this. And DOH has obviously put in a lot of work. But I, I think that there's an argument to be made that they, they really needed to do this now. Because cannabis companies, not just in Florida, but generally, they're like, the Raptors from Jurassic Park, where, you know, they have this electrified fence, but they're constantly touching the fence, constantly testing the fence to see where the points of weakness in the fence are. And there's a variance that Kiraleaf got for a product that basically were like little mini lozenges. And that's, that's basically was the approach with DOH. These are, these are mini lozenges that we're going to sell on the micro uh, and the market. But when you look at how they're advertised and like every other jurisdiction they're sold in, they're sold as micro gummies. It appeared that the MMTCs had figured out where the weaknesses in the electric fence were, and there there needed to be rules. There needed to be edibles rules. Otherwise, it was going to go sideways. It's very important to understand how much work went into this. But at the same time, I think that it was it was very smart of the Department of Health and critical to drop these rules now before something like that got out of control. And there were things that are people, you, you never want to have a hypocritical regulator or a, a regulations that don't make sense and that, okay, we don't have edibles, but we have these things that consumers in other markets clearly look at and think of as edibles. So credit to DOH for getting ahead of that before it became an issue. I, I agree 100% about that. I mean, people don't realize sometimes that it's easier for a regulator to kick the can down the road than it is for them to pull the trigger on a new regulation, especially one as consequential as this. I think Ryan mentioned some of the market impact it could have, the edibles market. So this is something that's very substantial, has a lot of eyes on it. So yeah, kudos to the department for, for going through that process. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with everything that you all said. Just looking at other states, I feel like almost half the time that you see a major regulatory shift or new regulations, it's either because people are sort of 
already threading the needle and the department needs to move and get ahead of it, or it's because you've got some people who are maybe backing into some bad practices that weren't necessarily contemplated when the first regulations came out and they need to deal with it. But this is fairly commonplace in any newly regulated industry where facts on the ground are quickly evolving. Well, to Christian's point as well, I mean, if there are MMTCs in Florida, not to mention any specific names, but that do market their products, their tinctures, their drops as edibles. If you go to their website, there's an edible section. If you're signed up to their marketing emails, like I am for this podcast, you get emails about edible products that are technically not looking at these new emergency rules or not technically within the definition of an edible product under the new emergency rule. So it's an interesting interesting state of affairs. And again, it goes to the point, DOH needed to do something on this and they're moving forward. Yeah, and I think this is such an innovative industry, right? I think it was a combination of the sublingual tablets and maybe the powders that TrueLeave has too. Both of those things are sort of newer, innovative products, at least in Florida. You know, some of the powders even in, in some other states are a newer thing that, that seemingly have, have been coming to fruition. And I think it's it's good that they have started to move forward with this process. Let's hope that it, it is is helpful and, and guiding and, and you know not too overly restrictive and go from there. Yeah. So let's talk about the foundation on which this house is built, which is the statute. When you read the rule, you come away thinking this edible program is going to be no fun at all. It's like literally the no fun league for for edibles. There's no bright colors very restrictive on shapes. It's, it, it, you don't want to remind me of, it reminded me of that episode of The Office. I forget whose party they were throwing, but Dwight takes over the party planning committee and the banner at the back of the room, it says just like, it's your birthday. <laughs> and it's on like, the old 1995 printer paper that like all linked up together. So it's just like one long piece of paper. <laughs> Here are edibles. You get to eat edibles. There's nothing fun about these edibles. You couldn't even have letters, right? Yeah. Right. You couldn't even have your birthday on the edibles. Yeah, that's what I mean. Right. Uh, You could not. (laughs) But that is not the Department of Health's fault. I'm going to go ahead and I'm 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 going to die on this hill. DOH is responsible for regulating this industry and keeping the train on the tracks, but the no fun is a direct result of the legislature. Even though the the amount of descriptive language in the statute for edibles is relatively small, what is what is there is very powerful. <laughs> well, let's jump into the rule. 64ER20-33 standards for edibles. And we'll post the links to all the rules on our Twitter account at regulated pod. So you'll have all the information if you want to right. follow along. This is a four page plus about one paragraph rule. So as Ryan mentioned, it is detailed without being potentially Byzantine or cumbersome. It lays out pretty much everything you need. It's a, it's a edible starter kit for the regulated industry. For an emergency rule, I think it's pretty solid and it's going to be with us until DOH moves through rulemaking. And you saw some quotes from the MMTCs. There's already stuff in there that they're not too thrilled about that there will probably be public comment on moving forward. But jumping in, obviously right off the bat, DOH did not step in the shoes of DACs at all, the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. They All they did in their rule was they basically said, you must Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and you must 
comply with what DAX tells you to comply with under Chapter 500. Wham, bam, done. Consistency is the right. most important thing. They incorporate yep. Chapter 500 and, D- and DAX by reference, but there is there is you're not going to find overlap in this DOH rule with what DAX is doing. Okay, the next the next one, just jumping right into it. All edibles must be produced by MMTC in the MMTC's department-approved processing facility and package the label in accordance with 3D1986 and the department's MMTC packaging labeling rule. Okay, right off the bat, outsourcing is going to be extremely difficult. You are It's going to be very hard to secure an outside vendor in order to produce your edibles because this is very clearly indicating that the Department of Health wants edible production to remain part of the vertically integrated industries in Florida, which represents a challenge because cannabis companies uh, in Florida are already growing, processing, manufacturing, packaging, and selling their products. Making edibles is a new channel. It's a new production line. You have to have people who know how to do these things. You have to formulate these products. Just licensing out IP is not enough. You actually need machinery in order to produce baked goods or gummies. There's technical sophistication there. And so that costs money, that costs time. And so if you've invested in that coming up and you have cash on hand to execute, great. If you don't, it's going to be very hard to spool up a statewide distribution network for your for your edible manufacturer. What do you guys think? It's also worth adding into that that Commercial manufacturing of food products is itself a highly regulated and difficult type of business model. So when you you add that with all of the regulations on top of cannabis, it's one of the reasons that while edibles is definitely considered a growing market, you don't see the market flooded with a lot of different producers of it in most states. There's only relative to the people who are cultivating or simply extracting, there's, there's a relatively small number of them. And it's because it, it can be so complicated to, to put this together. So I think that's a really good point. Okay. Second interesting thing that I saw. 3A. So before producing and dispensing edibles, the, the MMTC basically has to seek a variance for each edible. And it, each right. product. It explicitly right. says that edibles are going to be considered on a case-by-case basis, and packaging and labeling are included in the variants. So, Tony, every edible product these guys produce individually has to be submitted as a variance to the department for individual consideration. So it's not like, here's a bulk list of all of the things we want to produce, approve or deny. It's like, no, no, no. Here are itemized specific variances for each thing to be considered on their own merit. Well, Christian, you know, obviously this is my favorite part of the rule because it's the billable hour section. You, so. you can't tell, but but Tony's yeah. making that that thing where you slide the top of your hands next to each other, which is like <laughs> slinging dollar dollar bills because this is this is a there's a lot of stuff in here that's going to be billable hours for attorneys. It's also going to be more work for the department. In any in any retail context, you know, you have a, a a variety of products that you're selling, right? If you're at a grocery store, you have a variety of bonbons that you sell. And sometimes you sell you sell different suppliers, you sell different products, different flavors. So in the MMTC context, if you have a menu of let's say a dozen items to start out, that that inventory, you know, that selection could grow to two dozen. It could you could change flavors. You have variety. So I'm saying all that to say there's going to be a lot of activity, 
a lot of administrative process in terms of seeking these variances. There could be some tension as people continue to be on the more creative side in terms of what products they're looking at uh, introducing, where there's pushback from the department. So, you know, it's going to, this is the most interesting, I think, administrative part of this rule. Uh, and I'd I like to point out, just as somebody's worked in a, in a couple of, of, of a bunch of different states with edibles, while it's not necessarily common for each individual label and uh, package that need to be approved uh, one, one by one with a variance, it is fairly reasonable and, and common for each product type recipe to need to be specifically approved by the regulator. That's pretty common. And I have seen at least a few states where they included into that the packaging and labeling. So it's not as if Florida is going out on a limb here and necessarily over-regulating. From like a litigation or just a workflow perspective, I actually kind of like this because what it allows MMTCs to do explicitly is to get the easy lifts, the light lifts done. Just get it through DOH approval, and then the stuff where they're pushing the envelope, the Raptors testing the fence and kind of seeing where the boundaries are, because there there is some gray here. Those things are considered on a separate track, and they don't hold up edible implementation of Florida. Okay, moving on to the next. So as part of the variance, this is a separate subsection of the rule, but as part of each variance, they're supposed to submit a photo of the proposed edible, I guess it says a picture, not a photo, which I think is, a, is an important distinction of the edible bearing the universal symbol. But okay, so here was my question, right? It is illegal to produce that said edible until you have appro- approval to produce it. So MMTCs can't just produce en masse prototypes that have active ingredient in it until they're they're given clearance. And so that's either a computer rendering or like a photo or a picture of an inert edible that doesn't have THC in it. What do you think, Ryan? I see you nodding your head. Well, sure. Well, I, I, I'm just hearkening back to some of the things that I've seen in some of the big, you know, cannabis expos and whatnot where edible producers will bring an unadulterated product and they'll bring the exact same recipe, but without the oil, they'll put it into the same packaging. You're basically looking at it. Now that's a, not necessarily the best representative when it comes to actually evaluating and approving because whether or not you're going to have a homogeneous product where, you know, taking a bite from this side of the candy bar versus that side of the candy bar is going to give you the same effect. It, it, I think that would be a way to get around at least reviewing the packaging and, and whatnot for, for this instance. But but I definitely agree with you. Until you unless you actually have some type of allowance for R and D product that won't hit the commercial stream until it is approved, that there really will be some difficulty here for the regulator to really know what it is they're approving unless they have an actual product to work against. Right. So you can obviously make a brownie or a cookie. It's, it's visually, it's not difficult to produce those things, a rendering, or you just bake your brownie without, but like the effervescent powder stuff I thought was, was interesting. Like there's some edibles that it's interesting that, or the gummies, like things that you think of that are produced, I guess it doesn't make a difference to the department. That's just something that stuck out to me reading it. It was like, oh, this is interesting. They're, they have to give you a picture for something that's not supposed to exist yet. Okay, Eric, I want to talk to you about the next one because I, I literally out, laughed out loud when I read this. So we talked about how Florida edibles are no fun. <laughs> they literally list 
literally list specifically the shapes that edibles can be. And I hear Tony laughing. They can be, I, literally, it says edibles shall take the following shape. Square, circle, rectangle, triangle, parallel, parallelogram, oval, diamond. I literally, again, not to harken back to the office, too many times on a podcast, but I was watching the episode called Hot Girl last night. And it's where Amy Adams comes in and she's a purse salesman, saleswoman. And she's in the conference room selling people's purses. And she's talking to Angela and she's like, what colors do you like? And Angela's like, uh, gray, dark gray, light gray. <laughs> That's edibles. You get a circle, you get a square, you get a diamond. <laughs> what do you think, Eric? My favorite part was the parallelogram. I mean, I had to go in and I was like, all right, what? I was like going back to geometry and, and everything else. And then, you know, I was wondering like, okay, so can you have, you can't have like a little shape of like a watermelon type or can you put a hole in the circle so it's like a ring that looks like other commercially available products too. And then the colors, the grays, like you mentioned, there's just a lot of things that if you're doing it in another place, you may have been doing it one way and then you're going to have to reformulate and, and change some things as well as all, all the things you mentioned about all the individual submissions uh, for these variances, which, which works out for, for some people, but is cumbersome for the department and others. So, what, This is what this does. No one from DOH has told me why they, they did this, but I'll tell you why I would have done this because it it is the cement wall instead of the electric fence. It is putting the Raptors on an island surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. They, they, there is no debate about whether an insect is an animal. There's no debate about whether or not a Gumby is shaped like a person or whether or not this shape appeals to children. You get basic geometric shapes. That's it. There's not going to be any argument about creatively shaped edibles. Now, I think that you can probably be creative in some ways that we'll see in the future with geometric shapes where it's a geometric shape, but it's still kind of, you know, but this curbs a lot of the gray area of what is appealing and what isn't appealing and what shapes you can do what what fruits are appealing to children and what fruits aren't appealing to children. Yeah, I agree with this. You can say whatever you want to say about this rule. You can't say that it doesn't provide clarity in terms right. of what products are acceptable. I literally the- laughed out loud when I read these shapes. I, I was, I, <laughs> this is so blatantly <laughs> no fun that I, I was just sitting there thinking about the regulators when they wrote this. <laughs> just- well, it's, well, you got to think about it, Christian. It's, it's probably only a matter of days before someone puts four circles together in the Audi logo <laughs> and tries to get it past the department. So this, there's going to be a lot of creativity here. Yes. I, I, I was, I was going to say, I mean, generally speaking, when I see these types of regulations, it's more of a ban on certain shapes or on certain things. Or, you know, not appealing to children or not looking like a commercially available product. And what does that mean? So I definitely think that the regulators were going here for clarity. I think you could even, I think you could argue that basic geometric shapes might be appealing to small children, especially if they were in primary colors. But Which they can't be. We'll we'll talk about that later. They can't be primary colors. Oh, my God. Tony, we're going to get into that. Now we're going to talk about product. So lozenges, which I want to come back to. Gelatins, 
which are AKA gummies, baked goods, which generally are what we think of as baked goods. It's just basically an edible that's comprised of dough or batter baked in an oven by the MMTC, importantly. So the actual baking has to happen at the MMTC production facility. Chocolates, they can't, they have to be no fun chocolates though. No fun chocolates cannot contain caramel, nougat, nuts, fruit, honey, marshmallows, or any other such ingredients, toppings, or fillings. So no sprinkles, no frosting, nothing, nothing fun in or outside of your chocolates. And finally, drink powders. So I want to go back to the lozenge. Here's a question for you. A lozenge is a, is a hard, it's a hard edible that you could put in your mouth and it'll dissolve slowly. How bad do you have to make a Jolly Rancher taste before it becomes a lozenge? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. And I think you mentioned it earlier. Kira Leaf already got some type of lozenge in. And and a lot of people do kind of think as lozenges is like an old-timey candy, something that's not necessarily appealing to current generations. I don't know when the last time I've had a lozenge is. I also think that I'm trying to think going into a lot of different dispensaries around the country like I have, you don't actually see too many lozenges. There's usually one or two on the shelves, but they're not an overly popular candy choice. And the one or two I've tried honestly weren't overly impressive to me, at least from a flavor profile standpoint. So I definitely think that this is interesting in in the push there. But but to your point, Christian, I I definitely understand why they did it. And and they made it a specific type of candies because they had to. They already had somebody who was putting out something out there that was pretty close. And, you know, we've got a large retirement population here in Florida. So maybe that old timey candy will be appealable to a lot of the patient base. I want to talk about drinks. There's no drinks. There's no beverage section, which to me implies... There are no beverages to be sold in the MMTCs. Now, this is my first day with it, but is that y'all the way y'all read this rule? I think that it could be read that way. I think that that's probably the most plain reading of the way. Since it talks about drink powders, you might be able to argue that, you know... But it says drink powders made by... It, it taken and added to water by the by the patient. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's a minor detail that I, that I missed, so... yeah. Yeah, I'd say that largely speaking, you're, you're probably correct. I mean, you could point out the fact that lozenges, for instance, are basically just solidified liquid for the most part. You know, you take robotest. So, I mean, so are we. Like the yeah. human body is just basically solidified liquid. Like everything on earth is solidified liquid. <laughs> okay, then I withdraw my comment. And I'll just go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying, finger up. But here, here's the position I took. Is that, that like, DOH has taken a, a point that like we are going to be a prescriptive edible program. We are going to give you the, the rules of the road, the things you may do. And anything we don't list, we're going to take the position that you can't do. That seems to be what they're signaling to the industry. And it, so it seems like if you try to do something that's not on the list, they're, not, they're going to say this isn't on the list. Go do one of the other things that we're giving you permission to do. And it, so it seems like beverages are not on the menu for this emergency rule, to me, at least. Yeah. I, yes. No, yeah, I mean, it, it, it would seem that that they have pretty clearly listed, as we mentioned, with shapes, what you can do. And, and similarly tried to mention, you know, the types of products you can have. They mentioned drink powders. They didn't mention, 
you know, drinks, I'd have to look a little bit better into the definition of, of what a drink is. But like, back to your lozenge point, uh, could a lozenge be a gum? Is gum candy? That's that's another that's another know. interesting thing. And also, one thing that's not on here is mint. But is a mint really an edible? Because there are already, uh, if I'm not I mistaken, there were mints in the marketplace in Florida. Yeah, and I think those when they come out were probably start starting to get closer to this too, and and you know pushing for the things that patients wanted, and you know were in statute three years ago, and that we've been you know waiting for since but yeah i think that that's something that that will need to be looked into especially in the future you know i know a lot of people have been finding some great ways to do things with the powders but yeah i think that by a qualified patient is pretty clearly laying that out but i'd, I'd love to hear if, if tony or ryan have anything on that well, well, one thing I, I think of when it comes to sort of substantial rulemaking is that a lot of times it's a step-by-step process. You've got to tackle this thing bit by bit. And so obviously the department has taken on a serious task in, in, in taking on the edible issue. And, and what they've seemed to have done is, you know, they, they have the drink powder provisions in here. But in terms of a broader beverage conversation, probably in light of some of the controversies and, and confusion that's resulted in the Canada Canadian market, on beverages and serving size issues, marketing issues, things of that nature, they're probably going to take a separate pass on that and spend probably as much time and deliberation purely on a beverage specific rule than as opposed to trying to handle it all at one time. Yeah, I think it's what you mentioned with the, you know, the serving size and the deviation of that serving size and how you'd be able to do that with a beverage form. You know, you'd either have to only have 10 milligram sizes seemingly or you'd have to find some novel way of of combining it if you were going to have more than that in a single pack i think tony made a good point when he pointed out that these are you know emergency rules right. and for for something like beverages they're probably going to want to take a little bit slower although it's funny saying that with four years they're going to take a little bit slower of a process make sure they have public input and they really think it all the way through because Eric was saying the problem with beverages is it's very easy to not not control your dose. In a lot of different states, they require markings on the bottle. They require like a little medicine cup like you would see with uh, cough syrup comes with it. But in my experience and having seen people use those, you know, sodas and whatnot, people take a swig. They don't really like, they're not really thinking too much about where exactly that marking is or Honestly, they don't really use the medicine cup too often. So it's very easy to overdose with it. Though I will say that one of the things I don't know if these regulations really properly thought about when they allowed for the drinking powders, but not for things to come pre-mixed in a bottle is drinking powders. People are going to combine it in a regular glass. And so I think that might actually make it a little bit easier for people to mistakenly be like, my husband's my husband's Kool-Aid's right here. I'm going to take a swig of it because I'm thirsty. And people might accidentally overdose where it's not because basically you're going to separate the substance from its packaging much more easily. I think that beverages will become a thing in Florida if and when the MMTCs really want them. So either the patients or the MMTCs are going to really want them. I don't think the legislature or DOH is going to be like, we're we're going to push these rules out on beverages prior to somebody asking for them, basically. And the thing is, the difference between producing brownies and the, and producing beverages is the difference between owning a cat and owning a goldfish. They're completely different 
channels. The you have to produce these beverages and bottle these beverages. It's it's not the same operational processes as making a brownie or even a gummy. So I would say right now there's probably like six MMTCs in the state that have the financial and like operational resources to actually activate a beverage supply chain for their you have to remember these things have like these guys are are grown up. They're they're big ass companies all over the state of Florida. And anything that they have to produce in order to not tick off their their patients, they have to produce en masse. They have to have enough supply not to have stockouts all over the state. So they gotta be able to gear up and scale. I would I would imagine all but a couple are probably gonna have relatively limited options because they're gonna have to focus on this is our brownie, this is our cookie, this is our gummy, rather than going super wide, because they're just not gonna have the production capacity initially. Now I would say, you know, six months to a year from now you'll probably have more options. And that's maybe when they'll they'll dip their toe into beverages. But like I don't see that coming until we're further down the road for this edibles program. All right, skipping skipping ahead to the next thing that I I found interesting. Edibles cannot be mistaken for a branded product, especially by children. They cannot contain or bear resemblance to commercially available candy. My best friend Jekyll and I joke about the Twonky rule, which is what other states would keep people from basically making Twinkies or zebra cakes or stuff that are instantly recognizable to children as delicious dessert treats, right? What's interesting to me, though, is that it's specifically candy. And I think that's because that's what's in the statute. I was thinking about something that was like a very distinguishable candy. So let's just go with like one of the things I think is most visually distinguishable is like candy corn. So I don't think that you can make a candy corn edible because that's that's definitely candy. You look at something like an Oreo, right, which is delicious, which is commercially available, instantly recognizable, but I, cookie is not a candy under this definition, so it doesn't seem to fall on that umbrella. What do you think, Finger Hut? Well, I was just going to make a comment that I think if you made them look like candy corns, you'd probably be safe from children accidentally eating them. <laughs> Man, what, is, what, what percentage of the population do you think hate candy corn? Because I effing love candy corn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and somehow, somewhere along like the last thirty years, candy corn is ranked up there with licorice as far as like the candy that apparently people aren't supposed to like. I love candy corn. <laughs> well, I, I feel like the big takeaway from this is that Christian is a part of the silent majority. <laughs> I guess. It's the- <laughs> Yeah, it's in every gas station in America. I, I hate to tell you candy corn naysayers, but it's out there because people buy it or because it's shelf life, shelf life <laughs> would survive a nuclear war. So it's basically those same candy corns have been on shelves for the last 40 years and nobody's buying them. <laughs> One of those two is true. But I know every like October 30th, I'm out there buying some candy corn for myself. I, I kind of feel, like, feel like you hit the nail on the head there with those candy corn. I think it's popular. It has to do with October 30, 30th and Halloween because that's when I, I see candy corn everywhere. And I never actually see anybody eating it except apparently you, Christian. Okay, so identifiable candies, right? Now, now I tried to eliminate things that have specific shapes because the rule already takes care of that. So that's that's out. For example, one of my favorite, Sour Patch Kids, I think right. unequivocally is seems to be out because it's or not a gummy one of those bear. geometric shapes. Or a gummy bear or a gummy worm or a troll. Okay, second candy point I need to make. 
somehow Trolley has gone in and monopolized the sour gummy bear octopus worm market, which is my favorite candy. And Trolley is trash. Trolley is like the most gross gummy product I've ever tasted. But like if you buy it at anywhere in Florida, you can't escape Trolley. It would be like if you had the least say, say, for example, that you like just hated Burger King, right? But Burger <laughs> King somehow was able to monopolize all of the hamburger restaurants on every road stop, like in the entire southeastern United States. You could never escape Burger King. That is my life when I shop for sour gummy bears and sour gummy worms now because freaking Trolley somehow has this monopoly on all gummies everywhere. And it's it's like how how did this happen? How did consumers let their their gummies just turn into absolute trash in the U.S.? <laughs> uh, that okay. and candy corn are like big issues for you, especially around October. <laughs> so, like I used to, when I was in middle school, I was built like a marble. I ate a lot of candy corn and uh, sour gummy stuff. It was it was high school rowing that turned it around for me, but. <laughs> These are important issues for me. So specifically, so let's eliminate the worms and the bears and the octopi and that kind of stuff. You've got Skittles, M&Ms, Mike and Ike's, Jolly Ranchers candy corn, as I think things that you would look at that are like instantly recognizable, commercially available candy. Because there's a recognition component to this that it, it can't be some obscure candy because a kid wouldn't recognize that as commercially available candy. So just because it's commercially available somewhere, that doesn't seem to be the litmus test. It seems to be there has to be some cognitive recognition of the candy as of commercially available candy. What do you guys think? Do you have any other candy shapes to add? Cause that's about as much as far as I could think of for specifically candy. Well, I think you could add a few to that as a good, for instance, the Hershey's chocolate bar has a, pretty distinct sort of pattern on the top. If you were to take a rectangular chocolate bar, break it up by servings to look like what would... But it's chocolate candy because chocolate has its own definition. Candy is verboten, right? But chocolate is expressly allowed. That's a that's a question I have. Is, is chocolate... I don't know if chocolate is candy. Well, what are they... I'll have to look before, but lozenges, gelatins... Baked goods, chocolates, and drink powders are listed. I don't even see candy defined. Okay. I, I would, here's what I would say. I would go out on a limb and I would say it is literally impossible for you to make a candy bar that doesn't resemble a commercially available candy bar. So right. like I, I think all of – all. Of, I, I hate to be that guy, that famous quote from like the turn of the, of the 20th century who said everything is invented has been invented or everything that can be invented has been invented. But I, I would argue that if you go into a grocery store or you go into a, ga- a fairly large gas station like the Busy Bee, you will not be able to create a candy bar that if you took all the wrappers on the shelves, doesn't look like one of those candy bars. Well, Christian, I think you've identified a point of the rule that is probably going to see more discussion, particularly as they move to a permanent rule posture. But you know, I think it's difficult for us to draw a distinction between the product and the packaging, because many of those products you listed at the at the top, Mike and Ike, Skittles, M&Ms, you know, fundamentally, they look, they're not that distinguishable from a, an off-brand aspirin tablet or, or, or a, a generic p- prescription pill, right? They're kind of a, a capsule around, you know, a sphere, something of that nature. So some of these products are only recognizable when they come in a Skittles bag. 
or when they have the same color or the M&M branding on it. So I, I, I suspect that some savvy regulatory attorneys are going to try to push up against this, this threshold, the, the could be mistaken for a branded product, especially by a child threshold and see if there's any play there. And I suspect that there might be. Uh, no, I mean, I think especially where it's laid out, the following shapes are allowed a circle if they're saying that is allowed, but then they're going to also say that it isn't allowed because a circle is what a commercially available product would be. It, I agree with Tony's last point that there's some good regulatory attorneys that are going to argue on this. And, and, you know, by the time we get to a final rule, you know, hopefully they'll find a, a happy medium. One of the challenges in the cannabis industry with, with the new industry, with new regulations, there's always a lot of gray area that needs to be interpreted, a lot of subjective evaluation on how you're going to look at it. I mean, the way I tend to look at these things, focus on them is, does it really jump out at you? Is it obviously and immediately identifiable as a, as a commercial type product? There's, a, there's an old case about commercial where somebody had a robot basically turn letters and Vanna White sued them for stealing her thunder and court ended up siding with her and saying, yeah, having something up there in a dress turning, turning letters is obviously hearkening over to Wheel of Fortune. And I think that that's a lot of the type of analysis that's going to happen here. Is this the type of thing where any normal consumer taking a look at this would immediately connect it with a commercially available candy product? Yeah. And, but I think if you can't have colors and you can't have letters on it and any other marking besides the universal symbol, I think you could argue that it's not for a variety of reasons. And that's a really good point. And that's where I wanted to get to because that's where I ultimately got to. And why I kind of asked the question is I actually think that this is overkill. I think that this is, it seems self evident, but when you actually dig into a, a second or third layer of analysis, I can't, I can't think of a counterfactual. Now, maybe DOH has, and, and they, this is prescriptive to eliminate a problem that I'm not thinking of. But if you can only have specific shapes, right? So you've, you've eliminated all of the candies that are identifiable by shape alone. So then you have generic shapes like M&Ms, Skittles, Reese's, candy corn, but those are identifiable because of their coloring. Because like an M&M in and of itself is not interesting. They have an M&M and &M on them, and then they have the different colors. Same with like a Reese's. They're very distinguishable color scheme for Reese's. When you eliminate colors and you eliminate any kind of markings other than the, the universal THC stamp, I don't think that they're really – I don't think it's possible to mimic commercially available candy in a way that's like recognizable to people – Either you are allowed to have generic shapes and like generic candy. So like you could have a thing that looks and has the same texture as a Mike and Ike, but it's not the colors of the rainbow Mike and Ike color scheme that they have. It's just all like Angela purse. It's all very generically colored and, and boring looking. So I actually don't think that this is going to be a particularly strong problem because DOH is going to either have to allow very generic candy, or they're just going to say basically any shape of candy is similar to a commercially available candy. And so it's not allowed. And Tony, this is where we get to the color scheme. Because I think that this, this is one of my favorite parts of the rules for, for what this is going to mean in the future. Because edibles cannot be a primary color or a bright color. Now, as 
as everyone who has ever taken first grade art knows, in order to create secondary colors. So the primary colors are red, yellow, and blue. And then the secondary colors are purple, orange, and green. And you get the secondary colors by mixing two of the primary colors. And so you cannot have a primary color, which are the three foundations for all of our colors besides black and white. And they can't be bright. And there's an affirmative duty on the MMTC. <laughs> they, they have to minimize the color <laughs> intensity. So Tony, can I, can I add something lawyers there? Are literally, lawyer, Tony, lawyers are literally <laughs> going to have to have a color wheel in their office <laughs> that they communicate to, to clients and say, like, they're going to have to like take a Sharpie and say, this part of the color wheel is okay. But this, all of these other sectors of the color wheel, you stay away from. If, if Angela would buy that purse, you can color that edible that way. Otherwise it's going to get yeah. struck down by DOH. Yeah. 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 I'm Roy G. Biv, attorney at law, basically coming into <laughs> But no, it, it, but but that's not even it. If you look at 6A, it also provides that an MMTC shall not produce or dispense any edible that contains any color additive, whether natural or artificial. So when you take that and layer it on top of what you just described in 6E, there's quite a bit of color restrictions on this. And it sounds like any product is end up going to be, be a bland brown, light green, or sort of just a beige color. Like Off we're not white, yeah. Clear ish. Yeah, yeah. So cannabis oil is an amber color. And so if you're making a gelatin based gummy that's cannabis oil, I I don't I don't know how it's anything other than just that co- whatever that color looks like when it's being heated and turned into gelatin. Because you can't add colors to it. I'd be interested to even see how you can have deviations in color for your edibles. I don't know. This is something that I thought was hilarious when I read it. It was literally the image of Tony or me having a color wheel that we have to show to people. It's like this; these have been previously approved colors. Uh, I got to say, I was thinking the same thing. I could see lawyers standing up and arguing over the definition of, of rose versus red and, and whatnot. Well, I'm just looking forward to going into a state office building and talking about really in-depth graphic design concepts like the HSL color scale and <laughs> things of that nature. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So we'll move on to things that, that you can't put edibles in. The big lightning rod we've talked about before is meat. So there's no beef jerky for cannabis. Um, one, because the, the federal government has a role in meat regulation and because of spoilage, it's just, it's, most regulators take adulterating meat in any way very seriously. Anything other than marijuana oil and ingredients that meet the definition of food or food additives under 500. So I'm not sure what that specifically is eliminating, but I need to learn more about what what things that you could ingest that you could put in your body. Because obviously they're not going to put like rocks or marbles or something in there. So there's there's something that you can put in these things that aren't technically food or food additives. And it's not alcohol or caffeine because that's forbidden later in the rule. So that's, that's a question mark I have. Well, and admittedly, I haven't had a chance to look all the way all the way through it. But there are, for instance, beers and wines that are non-alcoholic that have been infused with with cannabis, and those are commercially available 
especially in the Western states. So maybe it's a reference to that. So like, oh, it's like Odules mixed with cannabis? Basically, basically. Can you, can you, so I know you can have low levels of alcohol. Can you have, Tony, can you have an alcoholic beverage, a thing that was created from an alcohol source that tastes like alcohol that doesn't actually have alcohol in it? Yes. And there's been some recent advances and processes that have allowed this. The biggest product you'll hear about, because it has the biggest marketing budget, is the Heineken 0.0 product that's on shelves. They sell it at Publix now. And Heineken is so confident in the the flavor profile that for a time this summer, they were including 0.0 bonus cans in their regular Heineken beer 12-pack as sort of a, a marketing ploy. So yeah, there are some 0.0 products out there it, through special brewing processes. And I suspect that you're going to have to do a 0.0 in any marijuana combination, I presume under other jurisdiction jurisdictional regulations. Got anything on that, Eric? Yeah. I mean, I think that in Nevada, I know I've seen similar products and it's interesting that like like we said earlier, I know I you know I think people are going to be innovative here. The lack of being able to do that, in addition to the lack of anything besides a drink powder being available, are you know multiple reasons why it's going to be difficult for that part of this product availability to to come online sooner rather than later. One other important element we've alluded to, haven't expressly stated, is that cannabis edibles all have to have the universal symbol where practical. And practicality basically means if it's a a physical, geometric, three-dimensional object, it needs to have it on it. But things like powders where it's not possible are exempt. The symbol would have to be on the packaging. The rule reemphasizes the vertical structure in that commercially manufactured food products that were not produced by the MMTC are not allowed unless the products are used as ingredients in a manner that renders them unrecognizable as the original commercial food product. And the MMTC does not state or advertise the the edible contains the commercially manufactured food products. Now, for other reasons we've talked about, this wouldn't, this would be obvious. But an, an example of this would be a MMTC could not buy an Oreo, adulterate that Oreo, and then sell it. They could also not sell a product that says this contains Oreos. So part of that is interesting because we see this in other states that aren't Florida with a mandatory vertical structure. And Ryan, one thing I want to talk about to you is I've heard one of the reasons that this is created is for IP reasons to discourage cannabis companies from getting themselves in trouble by taking products that have intellectual property and licensing and all of these restrictions on them and selling and marketing them as their own. Just And the only thing they've done is, is fuse that thing with cannabis. So I've heard that myself, and especially in the earlier days of the cannabis industry, when you had a lot less sophisticated parties have actually seen that. I'd have to say that, especially if you're using a major product like, say, the Oreo or the Girl Scouts, who, because a couple strains were named after them, actually at least sent a few cease and desists to a number of people who are naming their strains after their cookies. But I'd say that you have a pretty big target on your back because most of those companies are not looking for somebody to, you know, associate their brand with cannabis for a number of different reasons. 
Personally, I think that if there was some type of legal uh, relationship, licensing relationship, I, I agree with the regulators here that you don't want a product that looks like a, an Oreo or something that's commercially available because you're really just asking for somebody to unintentionally eat the product. But personally, I think that if somebody were to say, hey, this tastes like an Oreo and it's you know using the recipe, but we change it so it doesn't look like that, doesn't look like it just looks like a regular cookie or something of that nature that that should be allowed. But I do understand what they're doing here. I guess a mix between trying to keep people from getting themselves in trouble and a little bit of the nanny state. Let me ask you guys a question. Is a cheese puff a baked good? Is it puffed because you put it in an oven and it puffs? Is there anything re remotely close to dough or yeast used in cheese puff? Like what is a cheese puff? <laughs> I, I, I think I a, cheese puff, a cheese puff is a bakery product. It's a baked good. Now, I, I would say, so notice that the shapes are three-dimensional. Does it say cylinder or is it just circle? Oval. Oval. There. Well, oval and circle. So a three is a three-dimensional oval a cheese puff? Do they have to make sure that the puff is a straight line rather yeah, than a curve? <laughs> so let me, I mean, let me go through this. Like, is cereal, what is cereal? Cereal baked? I, I think so, generally speaking. Okay, so cereal is technically a baked good. Is a granola bar a baked good? I don't know about that, though. I make granola and you do bake it, but it's basically just oats mixed with syrup and then baked. Okay, so anything where heat is applied to that thing, but it seems to have eliminated dairy. And one of the requirements is that these things have to have a, an extended shelf life. They have to exist without refrigeration after they've been opened. So if, you're, if you've got milk or eggs in that, it's it's out the window. So that would eliminate like pudding. But there seems to be, if you just think about intuitively, you get away from just sweet snacks that people think of when they think of edibles and you get into the other types of food that, you know, you buy in the middle aisles of the grocery store. There's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, like pickles, like what, if you infused a pickle, like what is that? I don't think pickles are shelf stable though. Are pickles not? I thought pickles, but you go in gas stations, you can buy pickles out of a jar. Are they, are they baked? Pickles are not baked. No, they would like pickled eggs. I, I will say, I, I don't think there's a big market for a marijuana infused, like uh, pickled pig's feet or something along those lines. So <laughs> probably not. You're probably right. Maybe your naysayer like the candy corn. Maybe we have a whole subset of our audience that likes pickled pig feet. That would be we're, we're naysaying them right now. It, it could well, well, Christian, I think we've learned why you're a consultant and don't run an man, edible pig, company. So that's a, that man. <laughs> pigs are pigs are gross. <laughs> having having lived on a farm before, like and raised pigs, pigs pigs are clean. Pigs are as smart as dogs. They're they're great animals if you let them. But like if you don't, and they just they are gross. The idea of eating their feet with the stuff that that feet is those feet have been resting in their whole lives, super gross. Never, never, ever. Chickens' feet, which they also sell, are even gross because chickens are probably the most disgusting animals that we eat. But, uh, but we're getting out of cannabis edibles territory. I'm sure. I'm sure that if the OMMU staff were here, that the th examples we're pointing out are either very clearly illustrated in the rule, or like that th it, it would violate some other element of the rule. I don't know. Yeah. Potato chips, for instance, that, you know, I've seen uh, several infused potato chips. They spray the oil on, onto the chip, but the chip isn't baked. It's, it's fried. So where does that fall in? 
Interesting. So the fried, so fried thing could bake the chips, right? Yeah, you could Doritos. It would be healthier. I may not be as tasty or I think we should be encouraging people to be, to be (laughs) eating, like not frying their medication. Well, well, there's an interesting tension because MMTCs in Florida have been pretty proactive with marketing products that can be used in, you know, in homemade edible goods. So, you know, you can purchase concentrate THC oil at, I think every or almost every MMTC in the state, and you can add it to to butter, or add it to a, a recipe. And in some of these places, even publish recipe books on their on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, things of that nature. So I think there will be an interesting tension between the the veteran the veteran Florida consumer who, if they are inclined to to use edibles, has probably done some DIY stuff in the past. And then, you know, them walking in the store and maybe walking past their concentrate and looking at a chip product or a baked good product or something of that nature. And it's going to be interesting to see what the data says about that. What's the decision making process for somebody who's used to doing it themselves? There are a couple of interesting restrictions on the use of the universal symbol. First of which, there's the explicit requirement that edibles have to have it on at least one side. And that's the only markings they have which is going to eliminate MMTCs from stamping their name on edibles. So you're, they're not going to be able to, like with M&Ms, like specifically brand their edibles. Second thing that I think is interesting is that the symbol can only be used by MMTCs in Florida. And the first thing I thought of are the, all of these people who are out there making and selling CBD things. I could see them wanting to be able to use that universal symbol to give their products some kind of cachet credibility or, or, you know, that's, that's on the positive side. The negative side would be, you know, they, they want to create some market confusion because CBD by law, these CBD manufacturers and retailers are not MMTCs. They are not part of the Florida medical marijuana infrastructure but they may want to muddy the, some of them may want to muddy the waters by putting that stamp. And you also have the illicit market, right? So people who are making, who there is a black market in Florida, you put that stamp, the people who are selling, possessing, or using that illegal product, it, you know, it can create some confusion with law enforcement as well. I think some of them, you know, may be able to get creative with the interior of their packaging. If their logoing is such that it is similar in, in shape to what is approved, you know, and let's say they put 20 circular things and then have other, you know, circular patterns around that, you know, there may be some things interior of the package that may be allowed that gives them some wiggle room there, but it's, it's going to make it difficult with, with what I read, especially to do anything on the actual physical piece. Absolutely. Well, we should say, right, that edible packaging is also going to be very, very, very boring. This is the statute, right? I literally laughed at this as well. This was years ago when they passed it. But <laughs> each edible shall be individually sealed in plain, opaque wrapping marked only with the universal marijuana symbol. Edible receptacles must be plain, opaque, and white without depictions of the product or images other than the Medical Marijuana Treatment Center's department-approved logo and the marijuana universal symbol. So, like, these packages are literally, like, it's a packaging for edibles. It's more boring than Angela's purse. It's white, opaque, with lack lettering, and the, and the symbol for the MMTC and the universal symbol on the outside. 
Christian, I think what we're going to see is I think the in-store experience is going to be quite bland. It's going to be, you know, like looking at military rations, like you said, on the on the other hand, I think you'll see some spicier efforts on the social media marketing side. So there may be some very interesting, let's just say vibrant marketing efforts on Instagram and on Facebook with the idea that people are going to order this thing before they come in. They're going to make a decision before they walk into the store, before they get their plain white box with black lettering on it. So I think that's where where the distinction is going to be. I yeah. Think right. And I, I think most patients when they're going into, there are some that have the medications displayed, but some aren't displayed necessarily in the packaging. They're behind a glass window with the actual interior of what the product looked like, not the exterior. And then the exterior is usually grabbed from, you know, a back room or, or, or a back cabinet. So I think there'll be opportunities, whether it's signage with the screens, with emails, social, et cetera, that people are going to know the different types of things that are out there. Now, what rules and regulations may go into those or what may get approved or not as it relates to that may be another question as well, right? But they answered our question on potency. The The potency restriction is the total THC potency printed on the label of an edible may vary by no more than 50% from the total potency result found on the certificate of analysis. So you have what your potency is supposed to be for that total aggregate product is the way I read it. And then you can't have more than 15% deviation for that product from what its certificate of analysis says. Now, the second sentence in that subsection says that such a variance shall not result in the edible exceeding the maximum milligrams of THC described in paragraph 9A, which was the previous paragraph. So you do not get to go over the 10 milligram serving size. You do not get to go over the 200 milligram aggregate as a result of that variance. So you can go down. That's what that means. That variance, you can go down or you can have your threshold somewhere under. You're selling like 180 milligram total. And so they can go up, up to an upper threshold of 200. But if you're selling at that upper threshold of 200, like 20, 10 serving size, none of those individual components can be over 10 and the aggregate bar itself cannot be over 200. So you got to watch your P's and Q's if you're making edibles because you can't have variants that's that's making your bars too hot. I, I think that that's probably, so one, that's one of the big challenges in the, in the edibles market, homo, homogeneous, you know, substances, you're making these things at scale in large batches and you're individually, you know, dividing them up. And it's difficult to make sure that you've got your oil exactly spread out across that gigantic batch so that every single candy is the exact same. So I think that there will be a bit of pressure actually for these candies to maybe be a little bit weaker than necessarily advertised because that way at least the MMTC has, you know, that threshold and they know they're not going to have to throw out all their product because they were a little bit over what they expected it to be. But that being said, depending on, you know, what the product is, because, you know, when we're talking about edibles, we're talking about a wide variety of products. A lot of them, for instance, the lozenges anything that you can mix while it's still in a liquid form, I expect that to be, you know, much more homogeneous and there to be a much tighter threshold than if we're talking about, you know, we were talking about certain items like perhaps chips or, or things like that, that would have to be manipulated when it's in a solid form. I think 
in my experience, that's the more difficult thing to make sure you got homogeneity with. All right. This has been a lot of fun, guys. We're going to do our weekly regulated shout out. My shout out of the week this week is to Chris and Courtney and all of the studs over at DOH for cranking out this rule. They did a good job with it. And something that's been eagerly anticipated, I haven't heard almost any complaining, which is a very, very rare and impressive feat for cannabis regulators. Ryan, what you got? I'd like to give a shout out to all of the uh, current MMTCs as well as all of the national edible brands. I foresee a lot of licensing deals in the near future and a lot of national edible brands coming to Florida. And I think we all, I speak for everybody when I say we welcome you. Welcome to Florida, ladies and gentlemen. We are open for business and we are happy to have you here. Eric, what do you have? Yeah, I mean, I got to give a similar shout out to the department getting this rule out there. You know, now they have emergency rule making power and, and really pushing that out. And honestly, to all the MMTCs that have been doing a lot of R&D on this with different groups that have been trying to come here, that have been waiting to come here, some that were originally Floridians and are coming back to try and bring some of the products they've been working on, that they're going to be able to have those as an opportunity and, and try and work within this framework or you know look at how we can continue to evolve it. And Tony, as always, what you got? Well, we shouted out the MMTCs. We shouted out the department. I'd also shout out the customer base. I think this is a win, win, win for all parties involved. So congratulations to Florida for moving into the new edibles age. Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this podcast. We are not your lawyers. So if you have would like to actually incorporate some of these things that we've talked about into your life or into your business, go out and hire a reputable attorney because nothing that we said on this pod do we warrant is being true, accurate, or legal advice. This is purely entertainment. Although, because we are boring, boring nerds, this is entertaining to us. <laughs> so thank you very much for listening. It's always wonderful to get on with a bunch of friends and talk about stuff that's going on in our professional lives, issues that are important to us. This is something that I think is exciting, fun to talk about, very interesting. I can't wait to create my color wheel that I can share with clients and describe to them how immensely boring their edibles must look and feel moving forward. Tony, I defer to you to go ahead and close us out. Until next time, whether it's an emergency or not, please stay compliant.